you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the first chapter in the book of Acts, the gospel of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. This is the last of our series. And in their shoes, looking at Jesus through the lens of all the disciples, or many of the disciples, and tonight we wrap up really this morning, not tonight, it's not evening yet. This morning we wrap up our series with Simon the Zealot. We'll be making a brief mention of Judas. Uh, By the way, let me recommend that there is a fantastic sermon on repentance in our in our sermon library on our website that was preached by Pastor Golden uh, probably about a year ago or so. Uh, I'll send the link to you in the email. But he does a really good job in breaking down the life and the beliefs, the belief system of Judas. But really importantly, what, what failed in his view of Jesus? It's really the theme of repentance and that fact that Judas was not able to seek repentance and did not seek repentance. And so I highly commend that message to you, and I'll be sending that link to you. Um, today or tomorrow. But today, this morning, Jesus, Simon's zeal. There's no passage in the Gospels that really tells us anything about Simon the Zealot. The only time we ever find his name is in a list. Several times in the Gospels, you'll see the, the listings of of the disciples who are following Jesus, um, leading the way, chiefly with Peter and Simon the Zealot. You'll find him there in the middle. But we do find a descriptor with his name that gives us some clues about his life, largely his belief system. Simon the Zealot finds Jesus to be his zeal. Well, when we get to the beginning of Luke's recording of the acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles in the first chapter in the book of Acts, in verse number 12, we find that 11 of these disciples have been gathered around and stirring in them is a heart to follow after Jesus' pattern. They desire to to replace Judas the fallen, the betrayed disciple, with a a 12th disciple. And so they're gathered around. They, They have seen Jesus ascend and Verse number 12, and so they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, but not the Judas you might be thinking about, and another Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me as we get into the word this morning? Heavenly Father, we pray that that truth and joy of Christ would leap off these pages by the Spirit's power and invade our hearts. We invite the truth, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and to, to shine his lamp into the dark places of our unbelief and our faithlessness. And this morning, may you ignite in our hearts a genuine zeal. May you, may you keep kindling it, Spirit, as we follow after Jesus. We desire that our names would be, would be associated with the zeal of the Lord and the zeal of Jesus Christ. May we be a church and a people who are known for the excitement and passion and the pursuit of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
thoroughly in every part of our lives, pursuing him deeply, pursuing him profoundly, pursuing him sincerely, and pursuing him to be known in the lives around us. Father, may this message do its work by the Spirit's power and the Word of God to inspire zeal in our hearts, a holy and passionate and enduring zeal for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Simon the Zealot. Well, the only thing that we know, as we had mentioned before about Simon, is that he's a zealot. What is a zealot? What comes to your mind when perhaps I say that uh, maybe so-and-so is a communist? What comes to your mind when, when I would put that sort of a label them? What kind of picture does it conjure up about them? Does it, does it tell you a lot about them? It probably sort of starts to influence some of your opinion about a person, if I was to say something like that, like so-and-so's a communist. All of a sudden, you almost feel like you don't need to know anything more about them, right? Is that kind of how you feel? You kind of know a lot about them all of a sudden. Well... Um, Simon's title gives us insight into his social and cultural um, appropriations and also the conditions of the time surrounding him, both, both his own individual belief system, but also what was stirring in Jerusalem, what was stirring in Israel at the time. Simon's moniker gives us some striking things to consider when it comes to understanding the purpose of Christ in selecting really his disciples, selecting Simon as one of them, Simon the Zealot, among whom the scriptures here really don't tell us very much about. But what we know from the title of Zealot is that Simon was a lover of his country. He was a patriot, if you will. He was a lover of his country. He was an enthusiastic patriot. This was a Jewish nationalist party known as the Zealots. Okay, so not necessarily does it mean passion, but it was a it was a a party. It was a nationalist movement. Josephus, the famous historian and contemporary historian of that time, a Jewish historian, indicates that as far back as probably about 200 years prior to Simon's time, um, the Maccabean revolt, that these zealots, these Israeli patriots were strict adherents to the law and to the. Um, and they were known as the Pharisees of the Pharisees. They were looking for a Messiah, but a, a Messiah that would restore the kingdom again to Israel with all of its glory, and a Messiah that would crush any opposing forces that stood underneath um, its theocratic government. But about the time of Christ, several of the leaders of the zealot movement had been put to death by by means of their insurrection against kings like Herod and others. Some had become a law unto themselves. They had kind of become bigger than the law, you know, bigger. And we, we recognize that sort of bravado and, and hubris, uh, even in, in the midst of our own country and the, the atmosphere that's, that's being stirred in our own country of patriotism. Some had become a law unto themselves. And, and it was difficult without the means of force, which was often... Not overhanded, it was seemed to be a necessary thing to deal a, a blow, a, a physical blow against these zealots in order to put them to silence. Well, Barabbas, 
who was there on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. When Pilate said, whom would you that I would release? Would it be Barabbas or Jesus? And the crowd would shout, please give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. Barabbas was a zealot, an insurrectionist. He was the man who was set free so that Christ would occupy that middle and third cross. But Simon may have been part of the, some revolts that were part of this infamous party's actions. He seems to be labeled Simon the Zealot as if we would know or as if readers would know. You know Simon the Zealot. You know, for example, Paul Revere. You know George Washington. You know Thomas Jefferson. You know Samuel Adams. Simon the Zealot became a follower of Jesus Christ. You know that, man. And so readers during this contemporary time would, would be fascinated and drawn to this, that this man's story would all of a sudden change. No longer was he a zealot for this nationalist party. He was a zealot for Jesus, the King of glory. Well, likely his zeal was his spirit to draw the sword if that's what it took to get deliverance to overthrow the Gentile rule of Rome before he had come to Christ. But I believe the reason why every time that Simon is mentioned, he is called the zealot, by the way. Every time you see his name in the scriptures, he is called the zealot. Simon the zealot is to show the dramatic change that had happened when his life was transformed when he came to know Jesus Christ as a savior. And well, how did Simon the Zealot, who once became impassioned for this nationalist movement, become a zealot for Jesus Christ? As we find in Acts chapter 1, he is, he is stirring up the brothers. He is stirring up the sisters in the upper room in faithful and sincere prayer, eager that the gospel would break forth into Jerusalem from this time forward. We find him very zealous in the upper room along with his comrades and sisters in Christ. Well, there is two truths that must have taken place to transform the zeal of Simon for a kingdom of this world to a king and kingdom of a greater calling. And I submit to you that the same zeal ought to, ought to be transformative in our lives. I feel that too often we, as we roam this earth as Christians, become zealous for everything else or anything else, trivial and temporary and earthly other than the kingdom and the calling of Jesus Christ. So what were two truths that ignited and changed this zeal of Simon so that he would exchange it from the kingdom of this world into the king and kingdom of the greater call? Let's look this morning. Number one, Simon had come to learn to love another leader. He had come to love another leader. Simon became a lover of a different leader. His passion and zeal for an earthly revolution was trained and transformed in the boot camp of grace. He became a zealot for Jesus Christ. And likely he lost no zeal in the process. Likely as an impassioned and emboldened zealous person, he lost no zeal in his learning. It was just a redirected zeal. We have a lot of zeal going on in our lives. 
At times we find great zeal comes to a pinnacle in times of, of our favorite sports teams, championship winning or, or even their loss and we are zealous about change in the, in the system. We don't know how or when Simon came to know Jesus, but we do know that Simon becomes a servant of Christ that seems to be fitted for the service of the Lord. That is, he seems to be one who has, has been equipped, someone who has been trained certainly by following Christ, but maybe even comes to Christ with some previous gifts to offer in the leadership of God's flock and in the establishment of the church. We find that he seems to have served the Lord and in his working out of, of the gospel from Acts chapter 1 moving forward, and he played his part in the mission of the disciples. But how does someone who is caught up in this world to the point of, of wearing the shirts and flying the flags and becoming so impassioned that their name is, is um, synonymous with zeal or zealot, how do, they, how do they become Simon the zealot for Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we find that Simon had, had come to identify that there was a, a warring of the worlds. He had come to recognize that there is a warring of the worlds. He had, he had come to deal with this fact that the kingdom of God is not wrapped up in the things that we can see. These things that you can see, that you can feel, that you can touch, that you can hold, that you can accumulate and experience, they are fleeting. They're vaporous in nature. John the Apostle reminds us in his short letter that the things of this world are a vapor and they vanish, they appear for a time and they vanish away. And so the things that are real, the things that are eternal, are not always the things that we can feel, that we can hold, that we can treasure. But you know there is a unique mercy in the sovereign wisdom of God to make things of this earth fade. There's a mercy in the breaking down of your car. There's a mercy in the broken appliances. There's a mercy in the potholes in the roads. There's a mercy in the moths in our clothing. There's a mercy in all of these things that break, no matter how much we enjoy the comfort that they give to us, the convenience that they provide for us, or the security that they bring to us. There's a mercy in the fading. There's a mercy in the vapor. These things are designed this way so that our craving cannot and will never be satisfied with the stuff that vaporizes. God has made it so that anything that we would seek comfort and security and rest our hearts in at the end of the day and maybe even form idols of will not serve us for very long. In God's mercy, he has broken the things of this world so that it is only the things of the kingdom that are eternal. The hobbies that you have, the creative out, outworkings of your heart, all even the good things, the, the blessings of this world, are all diminishing. They're all fading by God's strategic design so that your heart's passion and your love will be reserved for the one who deserves and is worthy of an everlasting passion. The one who is worthy of the investment of your zeal. 
The team that you cheer for loses so that you as a Christian can be reminded that the kingdom of Christ is everlasting and never fails. And so the kingdom of this world is a vapor. And while it adds ache and heartache to our lives and hardship, it is a message to us as things break and as our bodies fail that the glory is coming and it isn't to be found here on this world. So do not set your hope and do not invest your zeal that ought to be reserved for the everlasting king and the everlasting kingdom. Do not invest that zeal in anything that's full of vapor. Second Corinthians 10.3, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the waging war of the world. The waging war of the world is this, and for though we walk in the flesh, he admits, yes, we can feel, we can touch, the experiences we have are very real. But he says something about the wars, the, the waging of the war between the two kingdoms. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. There is a war of the worlds between this war, this flesh and this world and the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul continues on into his counsel and his commands to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The war for our passions, the war for our love, really isn't even our hobbies and our interests and our favorite teams and the things that are around us that we invest so much in. The, the war for our hearts is not even the things that we can feel, lest we, with some sort of spiritual sword, could strike and kill them. No, the Apostle Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That is, everything of this world is covered in a shroud of darkness by the evilness and the wickedness of the dark kingdom of the evil one. And so he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And this is the exchange of the kingdoms that Simon the Zealot made. He dropped his sword, okay, to win the kingdom of this world. And he exchanged it for the zeal for Christ. Well, there's a recognizing that is that there is a, the knowledge has been brought to you. There's a waging of war between the worlds. And what do we do about that? Well, we repent that we're standing between the two worlds every day deciding which one we're going to serve. We're fickle in nature. We need to release the grip that our heart has for this world. And the way in which we release the grip that we have on the things of this world is that we set our face toward the kingdom of God, as Christ said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How do we make the things of this world fade in value? How do we make the things of this world 
fade in their attraction and our desire and our passion to invest, whether it's our time, our treasure, or our talent into them, how do we get a fading look at this world and an increasing value-driven view of Jesus Christ? We set our face to look upon Jesus Christ. We deny ourselves. We crucify ourselves to the things of this world, and we look upon the crucified one. And this is, this is the act of repentance that we go through. And so by doing so, we, we exchange loyalties. We embrace the one who leads us by championing, champion, championing and trampling over this world and all of its brokenness. Jesus steps all over this world. He stomps all over this world in a champion's march. He steps on kingdom gates. He steps on kingdom walls. He steps on kingdom palaces. And he steps on kings themselves. And I'm not even speaking only in the literal way, but also in the kingdoms that our, that our hearts are making. The kingdoms of security, the kingdoms uh, of worry, the kingdoms of anxiety, the kingdoms of greed, the kingdoms of, of lust, of passions, of desires. He stomps on them with his nail-pierced feet. And he says, I have conquered these kingdoms. Do not seek among the rubble of these kingdoms anything of value. You will find nothing that is whole that will satisfy. So be loyal to me and embrace the king and kingdom. Take hold of the king. Take hold of the king. See Christ as the king of your life. You say, well, sure, he's the king of my life. I don't serve any other kings. You know, so often we are ready to admit that we don't serve anybody others other than Jesus Christ. But we overlook one of the greatest wars of kingdoms in our hearts. And that is that often we are our own kings. We say, sure, we don't serve anybody else, but we serve ourselves. We need to see Christ as king of your life. And this is where, where Simon exchanged his loyalty. He said, no longer am I going to follow whoever it is of this movement. I'm going to fearlessly and tenaciously and passionately serve the risen King Jesus. Simon, in a sense, took the crown off of his head and he put it on the head of Christ where it belonged. And that's where we need, we need to live. That's where we need to live, is taking the crown off our heads and put it on Jesus' head where it belongs. It's not our crown to wear. It's not our crown to wear. He's a better king than you are. And his kingdom is infinitely better than yours. So embrace the king and the kingdom. If you want to live radically, then realize what Simon came to realize. Simon was eager for the thrill of an investment. He was eager for a return. He was eager for change. He was eager for meaning. And the investment into something that was promising of hope-filled change and great blessings, he was interested in something that was more than radical. And really the call and claims of Christ were even more radical than the revolutionists. You see, as, as pivotal, as controversial, as... Um, 
as, uh, as opposing as the zealot movement was, the claims of the risen Christ made the zealot movement claims pale in comparison. There are many causes and things to invest in in this world. There's many movements in this world. Likely you've lived long enough to realize that with the rising of the sun each day, there's, there's a new movement, there's a, a new cause, there's a, a new something for people to be excited about and, and try to enact change and invest in and whatever. Whatever it is that get people fired up every day it seems to be a new thing. We're not going to do this and we need to do that. And there's this big thing about, about everything. And if you don't do this, and that means you must be this. And every day there's a new kingdom rising. We get bored with kingdoms, don't we? So we come up with new ones and we come up with new radical claims and we come up with new revolutionists and we come up with new slogans, but nothing is new under the sun. Every day the sun rises, a new movement begins. But then also with the setting of the sun, we recognize that there's a fading out of the same cause and movement. Where, where, where did these movements go? All of a sudden, they faded into the background. But every movement and cause of man is by its own nature and value infinitely less radical in the value than the call of the kingdom of Christ. Don't let the well-funded, don't let the slick campaigns and the thrilling excitement and even the, if you're not this, you're this type of crowd deceive you. There is no cause. There is no movement that even comes close in comparison to the radical claims and the call of the gospel. If you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, you're doing, listen, not one of the most radical things in this world. You are doing the most radical things, not only in this world, but in all the universe, even in spiritual realms and invisible places that you cannot see. You are living Christ out in contradiction to the curse of sin and the evil one's warfare. Don't let the humble working of grace in your heart and even the humility of heart and the piety, the true sincere piety, lead you to come to believe that you are doing something insignificant when you are pursuing Jesus Christ in your personal passion. It may even be that in a moment of silence, maybe you might even live alone or you get alone in a time when you are before God, you are doing one of the most contradictory things in all of the universe when you get alone with God. And by his grace, he pours in his loving kindness and his wisdom and his presence and his guiding truths into your heart. And you are, you are in the middle of the most contradictory, controversial things in all of the universe, in all of history, and of anything that any human can do. When you meet with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are doing something radical. And everything that flows out of the spirit of grace in the righteous deeds of your Christian life is radical. You see, the call of the kingdom is greater than the call to any kingdom of this world. It is a call to come and to die. 
so that you can live. See, every man-made kingdom, any, every artificial kingdom is a call to come and die for someone else or to just die. But the call of the gospel as explained and, and uh, worked out in the New Testament is that there's something after death in this kingdom that makes this kingdom eternal and worth dying for. And it's life. And there's no other kingdom that can promise when you come and die for it, you'll live. There's no other kingdom that claims that claim. But every movement and cause of man calls for some sort of self-abandonment and sacrifice with varying types of levels and varying types of promises of rewards. And some of them, some of the the, the claims of uh, the world's kingdoms include physical prosperity, maybe social equity, maybe judicial fairness, maybe even political power, or some sort of other prestige. All of them, though, speak to a felt need. And many of those needs are, in fact, legitimate and needed in our world. And they're attractive to the passionate and zealous heart. It's possible that when Simon met Jesus, he was convinced that Jesus was going to be a very successful revolutionist and finally cast off this imperial oppression. And so it's possible that Simon's decision to follow Christ was motivated by, will he finally throw Rome off? But as he came to learn Jesus Christ, he came to make the best exchange that he could have ever made. It wasn't an exchange of one equal thing for another. Likely, at this time of the year, you've already received some sort of gift that was broken or wasn't what you needed, and you've already returned it for a refund or exchange it with your receipt for an equal value item or money. Jesus isn't calling for us to exchange the kingdom of this world for the kingdom of God. This is not an equal exchange. And that's not the exchange that Simon made in the sense of an equal thing, one for another. It is an inequitable exchange. I'd like to describe this exchange this way, the kingdom of this world for the kingdom of God. It is exchanging the temporary for the permanent. It is exchanging the broken for the beautiful. It is exchanging the vapor for the reality. It is exchanging poverty for wealth. It is exchanging sin for total cleansing. It's exchanging micro, the micro kingdom for an everlasting kingdom. It's exchanging the slave master for the righteous king. Well, this is what took place in Simon's life. And every time you as a child of God pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you're exchanging the broken for the beautiful and the temporary for the permanent. It's the kind of exchange that you're making. And it will feel uncomfortable at times. Your flesh wants to hang on to this kingdom. You claw your way back to the throne, but yet grace and the Spirit say, no, don't climb back onto the throne. Keep the crown on the king. Let him rule, and you will have the beautiful. Let him rule, and you will have the cleansing. Let him rule, and he will be your righteous king. Let him rule, and you will have the permanent instead of The temporary, let him rule, and you will have the reality instead of the vapor. Well, 
He came to love another leader, Simon did. And that came then secondly by knowing another kingdom. He came to know another kingdom. And this this is what journey we're on. We're we're understanding this kingdom that we have been translated into. We become full-fledged citizens of the kingdom of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. As time went on, Simon realized that there was something greater to be accomplished by the Messiah than the overthrowing of the comparatively mere pittance of the greatest empire to rule the earth to that point. Let me say that again. Simon came to realize that there was something greater than overthrowing Rome. Rome, historically, and to this day, one of the greatest empires ever on this planet, and Simon became convinced, yea, even convicted, that there was a greater thing to do than even overthrow Caesar. He came to realize by the teaching of the master that the kingdom of the heart is worth far more value than the fading kingdoms of this world. This new leader, Simon found, would make advances successfully without shedding the blood of of anybody else except for the cost of his own blood. It would be his blood that would be spilt for the establishment of this new kingdom, not his followers. No hatred, no murderous intention, no collateral damage, no hostages killed in the process, no deceit, no conspiracy was inherent within the plot of the gospel. Every part of the pressure of the success of this kingdom lay in the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. It must be his blood, not ours, that establishes and creates the foundation for this kingdom and makes him king. And so he came to learn what it was to live in this kingdom, the kingdom ethics. In this kingdom, in this kingdom, you would learn to love your enemies, not kill them. In this kingdom, you would learn that truth vindicates, not the sword. You remember when Peter defended Christ in the garden from the soldiers taking Jesus under arrest? Matthew 26, 52, then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. When Simeon had beheld the babe, Jesus as Mary and Joseph had brought him the eighth day unto the temple, Simeon looked upon the babe in Mary's arms and blessed, blessed baby Jesus. And he said this in Luke 2, 34 and 35, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword, Simeon says. Simeon talks about a sword at a baby dedication. Jesus, in the arms of Mary, Simeon says, is a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The greatest kingdom in all the world 
the kingdom that must be conquered by the blood of Jesus Christ and the gospel is the kingdom of the heart. It is in the office of any government. It is in the popularity or celebrity status or, or name recognition. The greatest kingdom to be conquered is the human heart. And that's what Simon the Zealot came to learn. Maybe we'll be successful with a sword to establish our kingdom. But that won't be the kingdom that really changes our lives. He came to know the kingdom and the king that would profoundly change the human heart. And so in this kingdom, Simon learned that you do good to those who even use you for their own advantage. So kingdom ethics. He came to know a kingdom pursuit and a kingdom passion. He learned that the greatest oppression that Israel and, and yea, all men are under is having departed from God in sin. This is the greatest oppression. It's not taxes. It's not a heavy-handed government. It's not societal issues and societal oppression. It's sin. Simon laid his zeal at the feet of Jesus, and he took it up again with a new fire to serve the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though Simon had put the past behind him, he would always wear that label. He's known to us as Simon the Zealot, but the word zealot, if you will, had become redeemed. It had become redeemed. And now here in Acts chapter 1 and verses 12 through 14, we find a list of all sorts of people, all sorts of disciples here. We find zealot, Simon the zealot, who's a tax hater. And we find Matthew, Levi, a tax gatherer. We have a tax hater and a tax gatherer on their knees in the upper room, confessing Christ as Lord, committing themselves afresh to carry forth the gospel into the world. Once a tax hater, once a tax gatherer, they're now together, bound together by the love of Jesus Christ. The two had learned to love one another because the bonds that Jesus had embraced them with They were made or learned or fully embraced love for one another. They soon forgot their former feuds. They became united in the promotion of the peace that they themselves had come to experience. One commentator says this, Yet the publican, the tax collector, and the zealot clasped hands and joined hearts at Jesus' feet. It was a picture and prediction on a small scale of what would come to pass in the greater church, where national antipathies were to be crucified and buried with Christ and rise again, transfigured in the glory of a uniting faith and charity, and where there would be be neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ all and in all. Jesus' ways of choosing men from opposing points of society with great passion in their hearts towards their causes. Jesus' ways of 
doing things are not the ways in which we would do things, nor are his choosings our choosings. So Simon came to know that there would be kingdom characters. No type of spirit or character is excluded from the kingdom of God. I want to remind you of this because this ought to inspire your your gospel-driven zeal to spread the gospel. There's no type of person that God cannot forever change into becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. No type of person. And so often we, we know that theologically, but practically and, and according to our opinion, often we think, oh, that person, I mean, they can never become a Christian. Well, you don't know Jesus, the Jesus is Simon knew. No type of spirit or character is excluded from the kingdom of God. Jesus welcomes, not only welcomes, okay, not only says, hey, you can come, but he invites liars and murderers and wicked ones and adulterers and idolaters and liars and cheaters and, and you and me. He not only welcomes, but he invites and he entreats and he calls all people of all types to come and follow him. One need not transform themselves before coming. That is, they don't need to clean up their act to come to Christ, but they will be transformed and become useful for his service. God delights to have all sorts of people in his church. And he would use Simon the Zealot and his choosing of Simon the Zealot to reach peoples who would identify with Simon Zealots. Why is it that God gave you the grace of salvation. It could be, and it theologically is proven out to be, that there are people who are like you who need to know Jesus Christ, and you can relate to them that way. We also know that there are people who are not like you, who he will also use you to reach with the sound of the gospel. He's just filling up his church with every sort of person. Simon would be added to the rainbow of people, the rainbow of perspectives, the rainbow of pasts, of backstories of the 12 that were demonstrating that in Jesus, that in Jesus, Jesus purposes to reach all sorts of people and to use those sorts of people to reach their sort of people. The psalmist prays in Psalm 69, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have become reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen 
on me. The psalmist feels the loneliness of living out his faith and his sincere desire to pursue God. But he brings it before the Lord, and he says, Lord, if whatever it is in me can glorify you, that others who look upon me might see you, even if it means that I bear your reproach, even if it means they don't understand me, even if it means they don't get me, I will bear under their hatred. I will bear under their spite. I will bear under their, their misunderstanding and misconstruing of what it is and who it is I'm pursuing. If it's for you, God. But let me not be put to shame in hiding that testimony. Let me not be put to shame because the zeal for your house is consuming me. One person said, could it be that the church's lack of enthusiasm is its own inadequacy to face the needs of today's world around us? What they're teasing at here is it might not be that the church needs more money. The church needs a better website or the church just needs to be accepted by society. It could be that one of the church's greatest challenges is its lack of passion. One of the church's greatest challenges towards gospel growth, both inward and deepening and broadward, outward, is that it is not passionate about the king and kingdom. The church, the church of Christ, is in need of zeal. It's in need of Simon Zealots. What would be the impact of one person who would be zealous for the Lord? In Shakespeare's play, King Henry VIII, there's a faithful servant of the king who is brokenhearted, who at the end of things, it fell apart for him. It fell apart for King Henry VIII at the end of the play. And now the servant is despairing and thinking about what he had invested in as he serves the king. And Shakespeare has him quoting, has him saying this. Had I but served my God with half the zeal I served my king, he would not in mine age have left me naked to my enemies. think we're left with that truth this morning. If we would put even half the passion into pursuing God in our lives that we pursue other things, where would we be? But does not the neediness and the fragility of our faith bespeak to us and preach to us, this is the fruit of your passion. You're building your own kingdom. You're scrambling to keep the walls together. You keep putting the crown on your head as it's slipping off. No wonder you're a mess. Had you but served Jesus with half the passion that you serve other kings and kingdoms of this world, yea, even yourself, where would you be today? This servant in Shakespeare's fictional drama 
came to realize who his life was serving. I wonder, who are we serving today? I ask myself that question. Who am I serving? Who are you serving? It's possible to serve others. It's possible to serve ourselves. And to do both those things very selflessly and loyally, like this servant did his king, he was doing his job. But still to miss what matters most. This is what happened to another disciple whose name was Judas. Judas was serving Christ, but only for himself. This is how twisted our hearts can be. We can serve and do good things, but still with the wrong agenda. It's still to keep the crown. When Christ didn't do what Judas demanded, Judas couldn't live with himself. His heartache was like the servant in Henry VIII. Would that I had served God with half the passion I served my king. Many Christians, and many times we as Christians, live this way. When Christ doesn't bend to our intentions, we can't live with ourselves. We're a wreck. We're frustrated. We're exhausted. When Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do, we throw our arms up and rebel. And sadly, sadly, the fact is others have a hard time living with us too when we are so frustrated. The kingdom is too small, that's why. And we expect Christ to serve our kingdom and not the way, the other way around. Well, tragically, what saps the Christian who appears to be serving Christ of any true holy passion. What is it that saps us of holy passion? Why is it that we can't be zealous about the right things? It's a tragic and sinful belief that our kingdom is more important than his. That's what saps us of our zeal. Why is it that we cannot light the flame of our soul to live passionately before God? It's because we are entirely consumed with building our own kingdom and ruling. Well, to us, we can become disenchanted in, with serving the church. We, be, we can become disenchanted with serving the church because the church isn't making our kingdom advance. And that's why we don't have any zeal. Well, the church is in need of zeal, and the church is in need of zealots. What would the impact be in your home, um, in your family, in your church? If you laid aside your pursuit of your own kingdom, and exchanged the loyalties and embraced the king and the kingdom. Let's pray.